seeing this particular format. So we want to make sure that we explain what is about to happen. As Michael has up here, Michael's going to come up in a moment. He's going to defend the Lord's Supper being only on Sunday. After he finishes, I'm going to get up and I'm going to present arguments. The Lord's Supper does not have to be on Sunday only. And we will go back and forth. As you can see, we'll have ten minutes each time, then seven minutes, and then five minutes. And then we'll close out. Then next week, we'll come back. We'll flip it around. Next week, I will be in favor of Sunday only. The following week, Michael will be in favor of any other day besides Sunday. So we just want to make sure that, that we're clear on that and that we understand what is going on as we are trying to just deal with these things uh, up front on that. So with that being said, Michael's going to begin, and I guess, James, you can put him on the clock. Five, two, and one. He, he means warnings yeah, of how like, much time he has left. All you got to do is say five minutes, two minutes, and I'll know that's how much time i got left. All right. Okay, so we are doing these debates, and this one, as Wes has already said, is that we are discussing what day we have to observe the Lord's Supper. So let's get right into it. I believe that the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus on the night of the betrayal, but Jesus did not specify when he would begin to drink it new with us in his kingdom. He very specifically, obviously, ordered his observance to remember his body and remember his blood. Now, I'm not going to turn to Matthew chapter 26, but I'm sure that most, if not everyone here, is familiar with that passage where he used unleavened bread to represent his body, he used fruit of the vine to represent his blood, and obviously called for that to be observed in the kingdom. The apostles began to teach that in, from the very beginning. On the day of Pentecost, the Bible says in verse 41, about 3,000 people were baptized, and they, that is these baptized believers, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and in, if you look at verse 42, the breaking of the bread. And so that is an indication of the Lord's Supper. But it still hasn't told us when the Lord wants the supper observed. However, we have an example. And if you'll go with me to Acts 20, you can see that example. And I'd like for you to turn there with me. On this occasion, and this is during what is commonly called the third missionary journey, Paul and those who are traveling with him go to the city of Troas, if you notice down in verse 5. And Luke is very careful to tell us that they stayed... In Troas, verse 6, we abode there, we stayed there for seven days. Now that being the case, they, on the first day of the week, and this would be the point, they remain there for a full week, seven days. But it is the first day of the week, Sunday, out of the seven days, that they came together with the church there at Troas and began to observe the Lord's Supper. Now we have the first, and really only, indication in the New Testament of when the Lord's Supper is to be taken. So if we are looking for authority in the New Testament, we find the authority for the Supper in Matthew 26 and the corresponding passages. We find the authority for the, su the Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. But we find the day that it was observed, the day that the Christians were meeting in the first century, honored by an apostle here, obviously, attending that assembly, of the saints on the first day of the week. 
Let me just make a couple of other observations. One of the distinguishing characteristics of our worship services, when I say our, I certainly mean the church here at East Orange, but I also mean other churches of Christ like us. One of the distinguishing characteristics in our worship services is that we take the Lord's Supper each Sunday. And we take it every single Sunday. We don't take it more often than that. There are groups that take it more often than the one day a week. We don't take it less often than that. I came from, and probably a lot of you came from, denominations that took it a lot less than every single week. We take it every single week, and I want to talk about why. Obviously, we assemble on the first day of the week every time there is a first day of the week. Why are we doing that? Why are we so careful to do that? Because the first day of the week in Acts 20, and you're open to it, it's the only day that's specified. And so we exclusively meet, and I mean meet for the Lord's Supper, on that day. We may meet any other time for Bible study or prayer or singing, but only on that day for the Lord's Supper. Again, let's continue. Why every Sunday? Now, I want to slow down a little bit, and I want to talk about the idea that we do it exclusively on Sunday, and we do it every single Sunday. Why? Well, first of all, back to Acts 20. Let's read it together. They stayed for us, they stayed at Troas, verse 5, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and we came unto them to Troas in five days where we stayed. We abode seven days. It was upon the first day of the week, Luke says, when the disciples came together, notice, purpose in their coming together, to break bread. Paul preached to them. He was ready to depart on the morrow. He continued his speech until midnight. And if we follow down through these verses, we find that as he continued to midnight, remember Eutychus, a young man dies. He falls out of a window. He dies. Paul raises him from the dead. Then they gathered together like you and I might do, and they pretty much sat up all night. And as they talked and ate, and I'm sure a lot of us, maybe every one of us in this room have done that. They were eating and talking, notice verse 11, a long while, even till the break of day. And then Paul, as just as he was intending to do, left them that next morning. It clearly shows us what's happening. They're meeting on the first day of the week, but why every Sunday? I want you to think about what the Bible actually does. If you go back to Exodus 20, and I might invite you to do that, look at Exodus 20 and verse 8. All God says in the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He doesn't tell you remember every single Sabbath day and keep it holy. He doesn't say remember all Sabbath days and keep them holy. He says remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. If you were a Jew and you were reading that, you might ask yourself the question, well, which Sabbath day? He hasn't told you. And since he hasn't told you, then when the first Sabbath day that you're living comes, you know, you come to that first Sabbath day, it's like, ah, this is the Sabbath day, I need to keep it holy. But then the next week comes around and it has a Sabbath day. Should I keep that one holy? Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. So you keep that one. And the next, and the next, and the next, every single one. Now, the point is this. They're parallel passages. Remember the Sabbath day. They observed every single Sabbath day. Upon the first day of the week, remember the body and blood of Jesus. We observe it every first day of the week. You see, the point is, because the Bible does not specify any particular first day. I want you to go to Exodus 12, and we'll do this quickly. But in Exodus 12, God is commanding the keeping of, of a very important feast to the Jews, the Passover. 
But you'll notice the first thing God begins to do in Exodus 12 is to tell them exactly when. If you'll notice this, he starts off in verse 2. This month, the one they're in, will be unto you the beginning of months. It'll be the first month of the year to you. So you're to take a lamb, in verse 3, in the tenth day of the month. And you'll take such a lamb, and you'll set it aside, and you'll prepare it. And then on a certain day, you will come together, verse 6, you'll keep it unto the fourteenth day of the same month. You see how specific God is getting? If you've got a first month, and a tenth day of that month, and a fourteenth day of that month, you know that every year in the first month of the year, on the tenth day of that first month, you just set that, that lamb aside. On the 14th day of the month is when you're to keep it until, and, and so forth. But we don't have that about the Lord's Supper. You see, the Bible does not specify any particular first day, like the fourth Sunday of the month, or the second Sunday of the sixth month, or something like that. So it is parallel to Exodus 20. We are to take the Lord's Supper to remember the body and blood of Jesus every single first day of the week. If a specific one is not mentioned, then we observe it every single one. One final passage. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 11. Two minutes. Beautiful. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is repeating. You remember this morning we said the Holy Spirit, Jesus would deliver the Holy Spirit, who would deliver it to the apostle. Well, Paul is doing that. Look down, if you will, and we can easily see we're talking about the Lord's Supper, verse 20. When you come together, therefore, unto one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And he goes on to say in verse 23, he says, um, yeah, lost it there. For we have received of the Lord, that I have received of the Lord, that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. I come from a denomination where my great-grandfather went to this passage and said Paul was telling them to do it on Thursday night because Thursday night was the night of the betrayal. No. Paul is telling you that the Lord said, I took the bread... I took the fruit of the vine. I said, remember my body and blood. But as we saw in Acts chapter 20, Paul observed, the church at Troas observed, the Lord's Supper being on Sunday. Not Thursday night, not Saturday night, not any other day of the week. Only on Sunday. It was something that was going to be done often. Verse 19, or rather, verse 25. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Often, but the question would be how often? On the first day of the week, but the question would be how many first days of the week? And the answer obviously is every week, every Sunday, observe the Lord's Supper. Wes? You know, I hope you're still there in, in Corinthians. We're going to get back there in just one second. You know, Michael, I agree with the observance every single first day of the week. I, I think Michael's made a good case for that. But here's the problem. You're using the wrong first day of the week. What you were calling the first day of the week is actually not the first day of the week. You see, because your day starts at midnight. But that's not the biblical day. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation of the heavens and the earth. And you'll remember 
that as things were being created, you would see a phrase that is used after every single day of creation. You would see this phrase, pick up with me in verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Look down with me in verse 8. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And you would see that down in verse 13. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And 19, there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Do you see what is being said about what consists of the day and when the day starts? The day starts in the evening time. Because if you go back, look back to verse 2 here. We know verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And notice, darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters or over the deep. You recognize what was already there before creation ever happened. Darkness was there. And so then you have God saying in verse 3, Let there be light, and there was light. So once the light goes back to the darkness, we now have day 2. So the way that works, right? is you would see this all throughout the Bible. You would see that the Jews recognized that the day began at sunset rather than sunrise. And I want you to notice an example. I want you to go with me to Mark, the first chapter. Michael used the example a second ago about the keeping the Sabbath day. And the Jews kept every single Sabbath day. And we have an instance going on in Mark, the first chapter, where Jesus has gone into the synagogue and he has been preaching and he has healed some some people. He's cast out some demons. And you would notice in verse 21 that it is the Sabbath day. Verse 21 flat out tells us that. I want you to notice verse 29, that immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon. This is when he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Again, the same thing. Now, notice verse 32. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out demons, but he would not permit the demons to speak. Why does it tell us that at sundown, They came and they brought all of their sick people. Because it's no longer the Sabbath. It's now the first day of the week. When that sun set, it's now Monday. It's now in our world, Sunday. We're free to do whatever we want because the Sabbath has passed. You get that? Sun went down. It's a new day. So here's what we have the Christians doing. We have the Christians gathering on the first day of the week, but guess what day in our calendar it was? They gathered on Saturday night. I want you to go to Acts the 20th chapter. Michael just read this passage for us, and I hope it it, it didn't go without your notice that you would see there in verse 8, 
that there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Why they need lamps? It's dark. It's Saturday night, but it's dark out there, and they need to be able to see what's going. And so Paul, and notice this, he was intending to depart. He stayed with them, verse 11, until daybreak, until the sun came up. So what they were doing, the Christians in the first century, they were gathering on our Saturday night, and they were taking the Lord's Supper, and that, in fact, is the first day of the week. But why take it at night? Well, here's our second reason. Our days are messed up, but the second reason, remember how Michael just showed a parallel between the Sabbath and the first day of the week? There's another parallel between the Lord's Supper and another something that he mentioned. The Passover. I want you to notice a couple things about that. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians. I said we'd get back there. Go to chapter 5 with me of 1 Corinthians. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in a context not about the Lord's Supper. That is, that is fully granted. It's about a man who has his father's wife, and the church is okay with that, and it's not okay. I want you to notice this thing that is said about Jesus. Verse 7. It says, Cleanse out the old lump, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, the Lord's Supper is the Christian's Passover. Jesus is our Lamb, and so when did they deal with that Lamb of the Passover? Michael may have read it, but I want you to go back to Exodus, the 12th chapter. Remember how he said they were supposed to get on to it and hold on to it for four days, right? On the 10th day, and then on the 14th day is when they would kill it. But I want you to flip down with me, and I want you to see the verse is, uh, verse 6. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole of the assembly of the congregation shall kill their lambs at twilight. Notice how verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night. That's when they took the Passover, and you would see Jesus doing that in Matthew 26. Consider that the passage that we use to say, hey, the Lord's Supper should be taken. We see it in Matthew chapter 26. Guess when they sat down to take this meal? Oh, what is the verse there? Verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined with the twelve. And then verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus gave that. You see, the Christians of the first century, including the apostles, understood that the day began at sundown. And so the Passover was taken at night. So therefore, you should take it in our calendar Every single Saturday night, which is exactly what they were doing in Acts, the 20th chapter. Because at daybreak, Paul went on his merry little way and he started making his way back to Jerusalem because he wanted to be there for Pentecost. 
Yeah, it is every first day of the week, but it's really Saturday night after sun has set. I'll yield the rest of my time. All right, Wes made several uh, distinct arguments, and I'm going to take them a little out of order from when he presented them. The first one that I want to look at, and let me find the chart that I've got prepared here. Take just a second. But the first one, turn to Acts 20 again, if you will. And, uh, yeah, that's what I want. Let's go there. And we'll start with Acts chapter 20. The big question out of Acts 20 is, what time of the day did they meet? Um, Everybody agrees. Our brethren, some of our brethren are teaching to take the Lord's Supper on Saturday night. But we all agree that it's supposed to be on the first day of the week because obviously Acts 20 says the first day of the week. The question is, what time of the first day of the week are they actually meeting? I want you to look carefully, if you will, at verses 7 through 11 in Acts 20. There are, in fact... Four clear distinctions of time referenced in the passage. If you'll stay with me carefully, and they are in verses 7 and again in verse 11. Number one, they met upon the first day of the week. But again, when? What time? Number two, Paul was ready to depart, and I want you to notice the phrase, on the morrow. It means literally the next successive day. We could easily show that from the original language. The next successive day is means Paul meant to leave on the second day of the week, is the point. Paul continued his speech until midnight. The Bible clearly shows us that, verse 7. And then finally, after the Eutychus incident in verse 11, Paul talked a long while, incidentally, not preached, just a different word, they're in a house now. He talked, he communed, they had a conversation a long while even to, quote, break of day, which is a phrase that literally means even till the dawn or daylight came. And that's when he departed. Now, if you're looking at that passage very clearly, here's the sequence of events. It does not tell us what time of the first day of the week, point number one, it has to be the first day of the week, still doesn't tell us what time they met, but it does demand some things. One, it demands a meeting that would take them through to midnight. In other words, they're meeting, he's preaching until midnight. So whenever they're meeting, he's got to go till midnight on that day at that meeting. Point number three, above. Then he's got to raise Utica, sit down, have a meal, talk till daylight, till the break of day. Point number four. But that's got to be on the second day of the week. The morrow, the next successive day, point number two. And that can only be, that can only happen, meaning that sequence of events, meet on the first day, go to midnight, raise Eutychus, talk all night, get up and leave the next morning at daybreak, can only mean they met sometime after midnight Saturday night. They could be meeting at 12.01 for all I know. They could meet at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But they have to meet after midnight Saturday night, and here's why. If they're meeting after sundown Saturday, Wes said the Jews counted the first day of the week as starting after sundown on Saturday evening. I don't dispute that. They did. But if they're meeting after sundown Saturday, but before midnight Saturday, notice, and he's leaving at the break of day, in other words, they meet 7 o'clock at night, he preaches till midnight, Eutychus dies, raises him, talks all night, and leaves at daybreak. That's all on the first day of the week. 
he ain't leaving the second day of the week or the next successive day. He's not leaving on the morrow. If they're meeting at sundown Saturday or after sundown Saturday and they're meeting before midnight and he's not leaving until the break of day Monday, which would be the second day of the week, then the sequence of events won't fit because now you've got two breaks of day. In other words, he's meeting after sundown on Saturday, preaching till midnight. Eutychus is dying. He's raising him. He's talking all night long. But when it hits the break of day, Sunday morning, it's still the first day of the week, even by Jewish time. So he's got to go all the way around the clock to get past. At least he's got to go to 6 p.m., but, get, but to get to the break of day when he leaves will be all the way around the clock on Monday morning. So that won't fit. The only thing that will fit the sequence of events is that they met sometime during the day, that is, after midnight Saturday, and that allows for the meeting on the first day of the week. They go until midnight Sunday. He raises Eutychus. He talks all night long, Sunday night into Monday morning, reaches break of day, and Paul leaves. That's the only thing that will fit the sequence of events. So what does that mean? It means they met sometime, I mean, two, they met sometime during the day Saturday. Now, let me quickly get this one in if I can find this quickly. No. First day of the week. What's the significance of the first day of the week? First day of the week has been understood from ancient times to be exactly what I said. Sometime during the day Sunday, not Saturday evening. And Justin Martyr, even in the second century, makes a reference to Sunday is the day on which we Christians hold our common assembly. So, from ancient times, brethren have understood this was Sunday. But why? Because the significance of everything we do is based not just on the first day of the week, but it's based on the resurrection. Even First Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer or appeal of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection is what empowers, authorizes every act in the New Testament. If it were not for the resurrection, then it would all be meaningless. So what is Jesus' day, the Lord's day? It's not simply to say the first day of the week by Jewish reckoning, evening to evening. It has got to be something that corresponds to the resurrection. And the resurrection begins at dawn, Matthew 28, verse 1. At the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. So Sunday... During the day, sometime is when the Christians were meeting in Troas, and that's when we need to meet. Now, Wes made some uh, references to the Passover. Let me just quickly say this about Exodus 12. I do believe there are some wonderful parallels between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. And you can make many, but you can't make every one. You can't go back and force or press some parallels because we just don't do what they did. We don't eat a big meal. We don't stand and eat it in haste. We don't smear literal blood on the doorpost, etc., etc. Okay, Wes. Sorry for the abrupt ending. You know, you go back to Acts chapter 20. Michael says it doesn't fit. Maybe he's right, maybe he's not right about that. There are some things about it that I find very hard to, to reconcile 
for them having a day meeting. One of them is in verse 11. It's after Eutychus has been raised, so we know that it has been nighttime already, right? Because he fell asleep. Now, granted, we can put you to sleep pretty easy right now as there's still plenty of daylight. But I'm guessing the Apostle Paul was a little bit better than than Michael and myself. But anyhow, verse 11, when Paul had gone up and he had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them for a long while until daybreak and so departed. You see, if they're not breaking bread until after Eutychus has been raised from the dead, we're now into Monday. And therefore, even by Jewish standards, they're not taking it on the first day of the week. It is Monday by now, because the sun has already set. So that would be an issue that I would have. And two, the second issue, how in the world are they going to have a daytime meeting? Like, man, they got work to do. They got places to be. They just had to take yesterday off. The Jews can be taking two days off a week. Boss ain't going to have that, right? You try to take two days off in a, in a week when they're not normally getting that. We get the weekend, most of us, Saturday and Sunday. They didn't have a weekend. Are you kidding me? How are you going to take two days off work? You can't. So logically, it makes sense that you would have it in the evening time. And you can't have it on Sunday night because that's not the first day. That's now the second day of the week. And so to me, it can't fit being a daytime because if you're going to tell me that they met, let's, let's say it coincides with the resurrection. Let's say that they do it in the morning. You're going to sit there and tell me that an audience of people, they sat and they stayed in a house from, say, 11 a.m. all the way until midnight, and then all the way until the break of day? Are you kidding me? We can't even sit here for an hour without people wanting to get out. And they're going to sit there for humpteen? Uh-uh. It doesn't work that way. It has to be on Saturday night into Sunday morning that they took this particular meal. I, I just can't see any other way around that. And on top of that, I want to go back to one more thing. I know we can't take everything from the Lord's Supper. I want us to go back to Matthew chapter 26 or from the Passover, and make that applicable to the Lord's Supper. But notice something that is relatively consistent in, in, in all of the accounts. All the accounts make it clear that it was evening, of course, because they were doing the Passover. But I want you, again, to notice back to verse 20. When it was evening... He reclined at the table. You go through every single one of the Gospels, they point out it was evening. Now, the only other passage that we have that really gives us a lot of information is 1 Corinthians 11. And I want you to see if maybe there's a time that is used in 1 Corinthians 11. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 11. Notice verse 23, as I believe Michael already read. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. The night 
the emphasis. Now, if we read this, the problem that the Corinthians were having was that, guess what some of them were doing? Some of them were getting full because they were hungry. Some of them were getting drunk because they were drinking too much. How many of you are starving so much at 10 a.m. that you're going to have a big old meal at 10 a.m.? You've already had breakfast. But what about if you just got off work and you're coming in and you're going to meet at, say, 7 p.m., 8 p.m., and you just got out of the fields, guess what you are? You're hungry. And brother so-and-so isn't there yet. Or sister so-and-so isn't there yet, and you're saying... We are here to have the Lord's Supper, and I am hungry. So what they would do, because they were hungry and because they were thirsty, they would go on without the other. And Paul would tell them down in verse 33, My brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat it at home. You're not supposed to be confusing this Memorial supper with a real meal of food, but they were. Why? Because they were doing it on Saturday night at the first day of the week. Again, I think I yield an extra minute of my time, and I'll hand it back over to Michael. All right, um, let's go to Acts 20. Briefly for a, another moment. I got what, two minutes? In Acts 20, as I said before, I think you can see that the uh, sequence of events in Acts 20 clearly shows you, and I'm going to put that up on there and just leave that, but clearly shows you that they were meeting sometime during the day on, uh, on Sunday. That's the only thing that will fit. They're going to midnight, then they're going all night till break of day and Paul is leaving. I think we can easily see that. As to what time they met and if they would not be able to meet in all of that, I want you to go to Acts 2 with me for a moment. If you lived in a Jewish culture, for that matter, if you lived in a Muslim country, and you lived in a place where culturally everybody is breaking at certain times of the day for prayer, for worship, etc., you would not have a problem with meeting during a work day, Wes, not have a problem with meeting at some particular time during the day. We can easily see this in the early chapters of Acts. Go with me to Acts 2 and notice that they are uh, meeting, they are all congregated together, and Peter says, if you will, that it is the third hour of the day, down in verse 15 of Acts 2. Quickly go over to Acts chapter 3 and notice verse 1. Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer. Notice that. Seeing it was the ninth hour, about Jewish time, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Go over quickly to Acts chapter 10 and see that Peter down in verse 9 is up on the housetop praying about the sixth hour at noon. Why are they doing that? Because David faced the temple and prayed three hours a day, three times a day, morning, noon, and at evening. The Jews had customized that. And began to meet at those times to pray or set aside that time, even in their work day. Now go back with me, if you will, to Acts 2 and notice this, that even after the day of Pentecost passes and the Christians now have the church there at Jerusalem and so forth, don't forget that they are meeting, verse 46, daily 
with one accord in the temple. One can question what time of the day are they doing this, but an easy guess would be either at the third hour, 9 o'clock in the morning, at noon, at 12 o'clock, or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, because all Jews are going to the temple anyway for prayer. That is, faithful Jewish Jews are going there to pray. So they lived in a culture that on that work day, yes, it was a work day, but on that work day, they're being allowed to observe and uh, honor their tradition of praying three times a day anyway. So it would be easy on this, this occasion for them to do that. One other quick point. This meeting a long time. I don't know what time they met. I don't know if they met at 5 o'clock in the afternoon or 2 o'clock or they met early that morning and went for 12 hours. But if you lived in this day and time with an apostle visiting, you'd want all the time you could get. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, we're done, right? Yeah. Oh, you get That's right. I'm trying to cheat the man out of his time. I am so sorry about that. Uh, all right, Wes. I don't get to rebut that, and the man walked right into my trap. It could make sense that they were meeting at these different hours of the day because that was their custom. But I want you to go where they got that custom from. He said they got it from David. I want you to go to Psalm 55. Remember how I started by saying we've got the day wrong, you've got the day wrong? I want you to notice how David words Psalm 55. In verse 16 he says, But I call to God and the Lord will save me. And here it is, verse 17. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. You see right there? David started his day at night. It was at evening he first called to the Lord. And then when he got up, he would wake the dawn with praises as we sing so often. And then guess what? At noontime when Peter was praying, he also would pray then. See, I think that just fits right into what I see as the biblical day is that it was sundown to sundown, so Saturday night clearly could fit. I'll now change into real Wes. I don't believe that position. (laughs) But you can see how convincing and how thought-provoking that position is. To that, I will yield my time, and I will turn it over to Michael. I've been real, Michael. No, but seriously, Wes is right. You can see, and we we sit and listen to these kind of arguments being made, people having someone come to someone and talk to them, and we hear this kind of stuff. And so that's why we're doing these debates. We want you to hear what's being said out there. What a lot of brethren, I mean, you might believe that this would be only one scattered person here and there, but a lot of brethren are believing this. And I mean, this is something that's practiced all over the country, I don't know about the rest of the world, but all over the country. So I I hope you found it beneficial. Um, And next week we'll flip it around and I'll be the uh, alternate Michael like Wes was tonight. And uh, Wes will be defending uh, what we both consider to be the truth. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you might look at some intense study like this and 
I'm not sure. I, I, I know Edward forwarded me um, apparently some comments made by a visitor this morning. If I've got that wrong, he can correct that. But someone came and apparently wrote about our service this morning. And one of the things that they found so impressive is that we weren't just here for any kind of whatever. We were here really trying to open the Word of God, study, do what God says. And they found that uh, refreshing and uh, very appealing. And we want people to see that. If someone came in tonight, they might say, man, I've never been to a service like this before. I, I certainly would never have been before being a member of the church. And yet, it impressed me. And I'm sure that you feel the same way. Some of you grew up in the church, quote-unquote, and so this is commonplace to see this kind of study. This talking about words and talking about verses and how they fit together. But that's just not the case among all groups of people meeting to worship Jesus Christ. We want to be careful to do what our Lord wants. And that's what it comes down to. The question tonight has not been, is Michael right, is Wes right, or anything like that. What it has been is exactly what does Jesus want. It is His supper. It is to honor Him. It is to remember His body, His blood. And we want to do it exactly the way He wants it. It's everything we do, not just the Lord's Supper or in our last discussion about, you know, worshiping God in song, but everything we do. We want to be concerned with what God says. What does the Bible teach us? It also helps us to learn how to study. Um, When we see people digging deeply into a passage, it shows me and guides me how I need to pay attention to detail. Our Lord died that horrible death. Marvin was very descriptive of that this morning. Many people are when they come up here and and, uh, we have the Lord's Supper. He went through all of that. The Lord is looking at us and saying, this is what I want. Will you give me what I want? And I think all of us, if, if someone did something for us, big, spectacular, special, something I couldn't do for myself, if somebody did that for me, my first question out of my mouth is, what can I do for you? What can, what, is there anything I can do? Anything you want? And I think whatever they told us, we fall all over ourselves trying to give it back. Why so much less on the part of many people for Jesus? Let's just do what Jesus wants. Let's try to determine what he wants, and let's do our best to do that. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, but you want to be. Believe in Jesus, that He's the Son of God, that He did all of that for you, and you'll confess that. You want to change your life. You want to bring your life in harmony with the Lord, what He wants, what He says. And tonight, just like I quoted earlier in one of the speeches from 1 Peter chapter 3, you know the Bible says very clearly, baptism does also now save us. You want to be baptized. You want to have your sins forgiven. You want to be able to appeal to God in being baptized to have your conscience clear. Maybe you got some things that are really weighing against you, on your heart, against your conscience. It wounds you. It hurts you. Know that the blood of Jesus can wash that away. Know that being baptized and doing what the Lord wants, the Lord will take all of that away. Maybe you're here tonight and you've been baptized and, and again you're still going through some of those kinds of things. Put it behind you through the blood of Christ tonight. We'll be glad to pray together with you. Won't you please come while we stand and sing?